0: You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 80, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, today, folks, we have an awesome guest. Uh, I like to take a scientific approach to answering questions, and today we have a real, live scientist on the show. We have Dr. Joe Schwartz. Uh, he's not a medical doctor. He has a PhD in chemistry. He's a scientist, and he is a professor at the uh, McGill University. That's in Montreal, Canada. McGill University is one of the, uh, I guess, preeminent universities in Canada. I think it's a pretty safe claim to make. Um, And he is the director of McGill's Office for Science and Society. I'll give uh, Dr. Joe a second to, uh, in in a few minutes to uh, explain what uh, that office is all about. Um, He's the host of a weekly radio show, The Dr. Joe Show. If you Google it, you can find it. He's had uh, numerous appearances on Canadian television and also has written numerous articles for the Montreal Gazette. And if you, if you Google him, I think probably the first thing you'll find is YouTube videos that he's done. I guess the Montreal Gazette Gazette has filmed these. They're excellent short YouTube videos explaining various aspects, uh, various questions that you might have about chemistry, uh, but uh, questions about chemicals that affect our everyday lives. He's had uh, numerous awards from the Royal Society of Canada, American Chemical Society, Royal Canadian Institute, Chemical Institute of Canada, even an honorary PhD from Cape Breton University right here in Little Nova Scotia. So uh, we're honored to have you here with us today uh, on our little podcast, Dr. Joe. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and the the mission of the Office of uh, Science and Society at McGill?
1: Thanks very much, Greg. Are, are you looking for a job as a publicist? Uh, <laughs> okay, our our um, our venture is is kind of unique, uh, certainly for in the university, uh, where McGill has said that our job as as profs uh, is not over the moment that our students graduate, uh, because today there's such hunger out there for scientific information that if it isn't fulfilled in a proper, unbiased fashion people end up listening to whoever's standing on top of the tallest soapbox screaming the loudest. and Unfortunately, those usually are purveyors of pseudoscience. So our our job really is to demystify science for the public, to separate sense from nonsense and foster critical thinking. And we do that in various ways. We we do that in uh, regular classrooms. We do it on the radio, on TV, newspaper articles, books, et cetera. And by talking to people like you who are interested in basically separating sense from nonsense in whatever area uh, that they are working in. And we do this in a totally unbiased way. It it makes no difference to me or to my colleagues whether or not any pesticide or food additive or cosmetic or medication is banned or regulated. Uh, The only thing that we look for is that whatever decision is arrived at is arrived at based on proper scientific methodology, not on emotion and not on on hearsay. So that's what we do. And we certainly uh, welcome and answer any questions uh, that we get by email or by any other uh, venue. And uh, we also have a very popular website and uh, people can look at that and you can sign up for a free weekly news digest that we put out, which is a mixture of really information and entertainment. And our website is very easy to remember because it's mcgill.ca slash O-S-S for Office for Science and Society.
0: I'll have to put a link to that in the show notes for this, uh, for this episode. Now, uh, it's interesting, as we got you on the show, and another recurring guest we have is uh, an author, a, a garden book author named Robert Pavlis, who is also, uh, he has a background in chemistry. And uh, he writes, uh, he's written two books called Gardening Myths. And he'll often take, you know, some uh, an old wives' tale or some some commonly held truth, and and uh, analyze analyze it right down to a atomic level sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and, well, I, uh, I like to say that uh, chemistry is kind of the thread that ties all the other sciences together, uh, because uh, by definition, chemistry is the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes which basically encompasses everything uh, because Um, matter is anything that occupies space and has mass. So, you know, uh, if you have a background in chemistry, I think you have a pretty good feel for what makes sense and what doesn't in the world.
0: Yes, you're you're certainly getting to the heart of it.
1: (laughs) Aside from politics, that's beyond the chemical expertise. (laughs) That's
0: That's for sure. Um, so speaking of which, uh, since, and since we have you on the show, as an organic gardener, I'm, I, I keep an organic garden in my backyard and I, I don't really know that I'm a, a guru. I don't think I've, I've never, ri- I've written any books and I don't think I, I don't have millions of people following me. So I don't think I could uh, position myself in that sense. But people are always asking me about chemicals and toxins and toxicity and that sort of stuff. And uh, I don't have a background in chemistry. I have a background in sociology. I'm a stats professor, an ex-stats professor, and current uh, government civil service employee. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not my forte. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll go and look things up and, and try to ed- educate myself in that area. But um, I think there's an incredible amount of misunderstanding. And, you know, one of my joys as an undergraduate was studying Aristotle, and one thing I noticed when I was studying philosophy is that the first step would always be, let's define our terms. What are we talking about? Let's, let's make sure we all understand what we're talking about before we move on to discussing that thing. I mean, often in the Socratic dialogues, they wouldn't get past that first step, but uh, <laughs> putting that aside. Um, so, so since we have you on the show and you're a chemist, I thought maybe we could, you could, we could get you to define uh, what are chemicals sure. And what are toxins and that sort of thing. So let's, and before we start with that, I just noticed that you, you got your PhD in 1973. And I, uh, I was born in 1972. So uh, how, how old are you and what keeps you going? In, you know, like-
1: <laughs> well, it's it's really the interest in science and uh, I never have a boring day. Yes. Uh, because there's always something interesting, always something new in the news. Uh, Of course, these days, uh, we're flooded by a tsunami of information on the Internet. Yes. uh, Which also means that uh, it becomes a tougher and tougher task to separate the sense from the nonsense. Yes. So much uh, of it is nonsense out there. Well, let's talk about some of the definitions that you were asking. The term chemical, unfortunately, uh, at least in the lay press, has become synonymous with poison or toxin, uh, which is is unfortunate, because the term chemical should have no... Sort of philosophical connotation. Uh, chemicals are just the basic building blocks of all matter. Everything in the world is made out of chemicals. There's no such thing as a chemical-free product. That's just a marketing ploy.
0: So uh, uh, water is a chemical, for instance.
1: Of course, water is yes. water is a chemical. Uh, the only place where there are no chemicals is in outer space, in the vacuum of outer space. Yes. But, Everything here is, of course, made up of chemicals. Now, the more interesting terms are poisons and toxins. Right. And uh, here we can rely on on some specific definitions. A poison is any substance that can do harm to a living organism, such as an animal or or a person. So, anything that has the potential of doing harm is a poison. Okay. Toxins. are a very special class of poisons. Toxins are poisons that are produced by a living organism. So for example, botulin, which is produced by the botulinum clostridium bacterium, is both a poison and a toxin. So a poison because it has the possibility of doing harm to an organism, and a toxin because it is produced by a living organism. Hmm. We measure how uh, problematic a poison is by its toxicity. So toxicity is a measure of the harm that a substance can do. So both poisons and toxins have toxicity. I see. The way that we measure toxicity uh, is 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 a problem. Uh, mostly we talk about measuring uh, acute toxicity. That is whether or not a substance can do harm in the short term. Because this is something that can be determined by using animals. Uh, you can raise rats, you can raise mice, you can give them substances, and you can see whether or not they keel over. That's a crude way of doing, putting it, but that's... <laughs> okay. And the uh, the measure that is used is so-called LD50. That is the amount that it takes to kill half of a population. Oh. So. Uh, Again, you know, it's disturbing to think about it in this way, but if you took 100 rats and uh, 50 of them died by the time that you were giving them, let's say, 4 milligrams per kilogram of some substance, then that would be defined as the LD50.
0: Oh, because every organism has a different tolerance level to a given toxin.
1: Exactly, which of course uh, leads to another difficulty because we determine this LD50 on, on rodents, but the human is not a giant rat, with some, <laughs> some exceptions, of course, yes. rule. Uh, so we are right away, when we're determining acute toxicity, uh, we are making the assumption that the physiology of the rodent is similar enough to the physiology of the human, uh, so that we can extrapolate. Uh, but that is not necessarily so. Uh, but there's nothing really else that we can do because obviously for ethical reasons, we cannot do uh, the same kind of experiment on, on, on people. Yeah. So it isn't all that difficult to determine the LD50, that is the uh, acute toxicity of a substance. And uh, it varies tremendously. Uh, the most toxic substance that we know of is the one that I, I just mentioned before is botulinum which is produced by the, uh, an anaerobic bacterium, which means that it proliferates under conditions when there's no oxygen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it cranks out this protein called botulin, which is tremendously toxic. Uh, in fact, it is so toxic that about one-tenth of a milligram of it, which would not even be visible to the naked eye, uh, per, per kilogram would be lethal. Uh, so, it is the most toxic substance that is known, far more toxic than cyanide, far more than strychnine. And uh, I point out that it is a naturally occurring substance. Yes, yes, and, like anthrax. <laughs> and I think this is important to point out because uh, people have sort of this notion that something that is natural is safe and something that is synthetic is, is questionable. Uh, well, there's no such equation. Uh, we live in a world that is full of natural toxins uh, that are more potent than the synthetic uh, variety. Uh, Botulin is one, uh, batricotoxin, which is the poison that is produced by the uh, South American poison dart frog. And uh, that, of course, has a long history where natives in South America uh, have taken these tiny little, very colorful frogs put them on a spit and and roasted them until they ooze out the toxin, which then they put on the tip of their arrows. And uh, this is uh, unbelievably uh, toxic. We have many marine organisms, shellfish, you know, um, that produce uh, uh, poisons. And then, of course, there are the man-made poisons as well. The nerve gases uh, are, of course, highly toxic. But whether or not a substance is very toxic or less toxic, has nothing to do with its ancestry.
0: Whether it's synthetic or whatever, it doesn't.
1: Whether it was made by Mother Nature in a bush or by a chemist in a lab uh, does not tell you anything about uh, any harm that that it can cause. So uh, yeah, there are a lot of poisons out there and there are a lot of toxins out there. And uh, it always comes down to a question of toxicity, which in turn uh, is also uh, a function of dose. It's always a question of how much of something we use. And uh, of course, this was voiced about 500 years ago uh, by Paracelsus, the great uh, Swiss sage, who really laid the cornerstone uh, for toxicology when he said only the dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, all poisons are drugs and all drugs are poisons. It's, it's just a question of how you use it. Digitalis, which of course comes from the foxglove plant, uh, can be used as a heart medication. But of course, it can also kill. It all depends on uh, on the dose. And uh, there are other variables as well. Body weight, something that is uh, toxic to a, a child may not be toxic to an adult uh, because yes. it's certainly depends on on the body weight and as a general rule substances are far more toxic to children than to others and then there's also the question of individual bio uh, biochemistry Uh, you know that there are some people who can be stung by a bee and basically it's nothing more than a little pinprick that they feel and then there are some people who have a devastating reaction to a bee sting And the same thing can be said, you know, for many, many drugs, foods, of course, some people have food intolerances. Uh, so we are biochemically unique and therefore it's, it's very difficult, you know, to, to have, uh, concrete conclusions about toxicity, especially when it comes to chronic toxicity, you know, acute toxicity is, is relatively easy to deal with because as I said, you can do studies in animals and see what happens to them. But what we worry more about, and uh, I'm sure people who are into organic farming, this is the question that arises, is, is what about exposure to trace amounts of pesticides over decades? I think we understand that, you know, if you drenched yourself for some reason with pesticide, uh, you would be looking at a problem because obviously pesticides are poisons. That's why they're pesticides. <laughs> They they are supposed to poison insects or fungi or weeds or whatever uh, you're trying to do away with. Uh, So I think most people understand that these are acute poisons. But what we are really concerned about is, is, you know, what about those parts per billion of some pesticide residue that may be on the produce that we eat?
0: Or people are worried about the, you know, leachate or whatever going into the soil and affecting organisms in the soil. And they're also affect, worried about somehow the pesticides going up in the plant, taking it up.
1: Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. you know, I mean, these are reasonable questions to ask because obviously these things do get into our body. However, the presence of a chemical cannot be equated to the presence of risk. It's a question of which chemical and in what dose and in what kind of, of organism. And, you know, I, I, I keep telling my analytical chemist colleagues that they are sort of the root of all of our problems about nervousness about food supply. <laughs> because, you know, now they can determine substances down to the part per trillion level. Yes. Which is astounding. A part per trillion is one second in 32,000 years. Or, get this, and this is, you know, a great visual analogy, the width of a credit card in the distance between the earth and the moon. I mean, (laughs) put that in your mind, rattle it around. Okay, this is something that can be determined by analytical chemists today. I'll give
0: you a good example or extrapolation of that. When I first bought my house here, I'm on a well. So I have a well, It's, it's quite deep in the ground. We had to get our water tested. And the guy said that we are uh, uranium and our arsenic was a bit high, and I was like, "Oh my god!" You know what are we going to do? And we, we got a water filter thing and all that sort of stuff. But one thing he he mentioned was that he said if if it was uh, the nineteen seventies, uh, they wouldn't be high because the, the levels that we have in right. our water couldn't be detected back then. Yep. They would have said it was fine back then because they wouldn't have even known it was there. And it's it's very funny because I'll have people, uh, you know, sometimes I'll use uh Uh, Leaf bags, you know, the leaf bags people put their leaves in uh, and they have ink on them, right? And people will say, oh my goodness, what's in that ink? What's it doing to your soil? And I mean, uh, you know, in the early part of the summer or spring, when I'm watering my garden with my hose, I'm spraying uh, (laughs) arsenic and uranium, (laughs) But I mean, it's a tiny amount. I'm not. I'm not worried about. Well, you know, it,
1: right? this is what leads <laughs> us to the the concept of paralysis by analysis.
0: Yes, exactly. You know, <laughs>
1: that that if you analyze for everything, uh, I mean, you you just won't want to do anything because <laughs> you'll find it's all there. But yes, the, it's always a question of amounts. Now, just because something is present in a small amount, though, doesn't absolve it of potentially causing a problem, because there are substances that can be uh, problematic in very small doses. I mean, these days we worry a great deal about the so-called endocrine disruptors, uh, chemicals that have hormone-like effects. People have heard of, of phthalates, which are present in, in uh, plastics as plasticizers. They're, they've heard of bisphenol A, which can leach out of the lining of, of uh, canned foods. And that you know, these, uh, at least in test animals, in very, very small doses can lead to reproductive harm. Uh, in some cases there are even carcinogens, but what, what that really means to humans is, is, is a very much of an open question because again, we cannot do the, uh, pertinent study in people. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, if we would want to test, uh, uh, the real problem that may or may not occur with bisphenol A, what you'd have to do is follow two groups of people and they would have to be relatively large groups in order to get statistical significance. You'd have to follow them for decades because you know the concern here is not that you keel over the next day. The concern is that something develops over the, over the long term. Yeah. And the only difference between the two groups would be the presence of whatever you're testing. So they would have to have exactly the same lifestyle, eat exactly the same kind of things except one would be exposed to trace amounts of, of bisphenol A, and the other group would not. Now, this, this kind of a study is, is logistically, economically, sociologically not doable.
0: The elimination of plausible alternative explanations.
1: Right. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're left to making educated guesses based on animal behavior, uh, based on some Large scale human epidemiological studies, you know, where you compare populations and see their disease patterns and and try to tease out what they have done differently from other populations, which is a a tremendously difficult uh, thing to do. So uh, as, as good science as we have these days, it cannot answer all of our questions because the human body is the most complicated machine on the face of the earth. And we are exposed to thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals on a daily basis, natural and synthetic. And again, whether they're natural or synthetic does not determine their potential toxicity. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult business and uh, people expect more of science than what science can actually deliver. Because when it comes to issues of toxicity, uh, what we are really doing is making, uh, hopefully, educated guesses.
0: Yes. And, I mean, to some extent, I mean, we've, we've got these, uh, these various organs that are built for handling toxins. I mean, when I came home today from work, I had a, a shot of whiskey, and then I had some uh, wine with supper. Um, and I, I'm sure there's, there's toxins in there. <laughs> oh, well, alcohol. <laughs> you know, if it... I'd fed that to a mouse, the mouse would be dead.
1: Uh, Alcohol is the prime toxin there. And, uh, you know, if you go by the classification of the International Agency of Research on Cancer, which is sort of the classification system that the world looks at, alcohol is in their category one, meaning that it is a known human carcinogen. Yes. For example, uh, glyphosate, which is a a, a herbicide that gets a lot of uh, attention these days. This is the active ingredient in Roundup. Yes. Right. So, and people are, are concerned uh, about that. Well, uh, that in the classification is in category 2B, which is possible human carcinogen. Whereas <laughs> alcohol, which people drink you know, on a daily basis, is categorized as a known carcinogen.
0: Isn't that fascinating?
1: Worry about more is something that is in category 2B.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. Similarly, also in category one, known carcinogen non-human carcinogen, is bacon. Bacon, bacon, and bacon. Oh my God! Fast, bacon is the fastest-growing food in North America.
0: Doctor Joe, you're killing me here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I would be if I were suffering you enough bacon. <laughs>
0: Oh, my. Yeah, this bacon's like, uh, you know, the, the the highlight of my weekend.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but you should be suspicious because you know that bacon tastes good, right? Yes. And uh, there's one rule in nutrition. If it tastes good, you shouldn't be eating it. If you don't like <laughs> it, you can have as much as you want. So go and, you, grow your organic kale. You can have as much of that as you want.
0: Yes, yes. I like to think uh, uh, there's some sort of net effect there. Uh, <laughs>
1: Oh, so, again, man. just, you know, getting back to the risk-benefit analysis of, of the agrochemicals, the pesticides, herbicides that, that are sprayed. No farmer does that uh, saying to themselves, gee, you know, I don't think I've been spending enough on, uh, on my farm. Uh, let me go out and buy some expensive uh, pesticides and just spray it on my crops so I can scare my customers. I've, I've, I've never heard a farmer say that. Right, and all farmers, of course, would like to use as little agrochemical as they can, first of all, because these things are expensive, and second, uh, if anyone is at risk, it is the farmer who is you know right there spraying it, not the people who are exposed to trace amounts on their produce yeah. so uh, uh of course, it is desirable to use these in the safest possible way to use the least amount. And that's what farmers try try to do for the two reasons that I said, they're expensive and they are the ones who would be at risk. So the alarmists out there, you know, are are kind of spreading the information that that farmers, quote, drench their crops in, in toxins. This is just nonsense. They try to use the least amount. And the only reason that they use it is to make sure that we have ample food to eat. Because well, if they didn't use agrochemicals would be hard pressed to feed the population,
0: yeah, I mean they are you know for certain crops, they are using crops that are genetically engineered to handle herbicides um, so i mean they're 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 choosing a crop that is tailor made for a given herbicide, and there's there's that that uh, your whole roundup uh, glyphosate Absolutely.
1: issue, but then you know people worry about the residue of Roundup on the food.
0: Well, and there's also the you know there's the, the concern that if they weren't doing that, how much food would they you know like I have a you know I have a garden and uh, I have certainly had you know whole categories whole gardens lost in a given year because of some pest that just exploded right. in population that year. If I had to feed myself, if I had to feed myself with that. If, I mean, I can just go to the store. I got a good job. But if this was it?
1: <laughs> well, you uh, know, we have, we have data, very strong data, on the relative success of organic farming versus conventional farming. Yes. And there's no question that to grow the same amount of food, you need more land if you're growing it organically because the yields are lower. And I mean, this, there's just no question about that.
0: Well, That's, let's let's be scientific now. That's based on the observations.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. And it, the number that you usually quote is about 20%. Yeah. So that even on a successful organic farm, you need about 20% more land uh, yeah. to grow the same amount of, uh, of food. Yes. And uh, with organic farming, as you su- suggested, if some sort of, of insect catastrophe happens, you stand to lose your whole crop. You're not insulated, you you have no... Right, because you have nothing to to use.
0: Yeah.
1: Whereas, you know, on conventional farming, there's always some sort of chemical weaponry that that can be used. So, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, ideally, we would like to use the least amount of pesticides, herbicides, because these are inherently potentially toxic. But we also want to have a widespread food supply I mean, I, I want to have my blueberries in the middle of winter, you know, because uh, uh, even though there may be some slight residue on there, I think the benefits of the nutrients that the blueberries contain greatly outweigh any risk that is posed by those residues.
0: Well, there's also the broader question of of how much of that is going into the system and how is it affecting complementary system in in nature and you know like so there's a certain amount that's taken up in the products we buy but then where's everything else going you know is is it just breaking down and turning into benign constituent parts is it going into a river and killing all the fish in the river is it building up in the soil in some negative way like
1: these are all issues the answer to that question is all of the above (laughs) because it depends on which particular pesticide you're using some are biodegradable some are not Yes. For example, the pyrethrins, and I know that one of the the products that you you alerted me to that you use is, yes. is some pyrethrins, and that's the extract of chrysanthemum. It's been used for thousands of years. That's biodegradable, and it's you know one of the safest uh, pesticides out there. But it doesn't answer all questions. You know, it's not good for every kind of insect, and uh, others, the the synthetic ones, may not be quite as biodegradable, and they may have, may build up, so even in the pesticide category, there are numerous different kinds of pesticides with different uh, safety profiles. Yes. But, uh, there is uh, certainly a great deal of science behind that now and, and uh, you know, farmers are now trained in how to use pesticides and, and which, ones, which ones to use. It's, it's not at all a haphazard uh, kind of uh, you know, uh, application.
0: Well, certainly they don't want to destroy, you know, every living element of their soil. That would not be a good long-term plan.
1: Uh, Of course not. I mean, and furthermore, it never pays to do damage to your customers. You know, (laughs) that's not a good economical solution to uh, to your uh, problems. So it's it's always a battle of, you know, uh, what to use. And um, these days, there's a lot of testing that is done. You know they they use insect traps to see what kind of insects are present in the field, so they know exactly which kind of pesticide to use, and they don't just randomly spray. You know there there's assays for what kind of fungus might be out there and which particular chemical is uh, is good for that, and this is what allows us to to have you know the the really the cornucopia of foods that that we have, and uh, you know it's now it's it's everyone takes it for granted that in the middle of winter you can have all your greens, you can have all your vegetables, uh, which means that you can have a much healthier diet. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, while there's controversy about these agrochemicals, there's one thing that there's no controversy about in nutritional circles. And that is that the closer we are to a plant-based diet, the better off we are. You know, I mean, that is very clear epidemiologically. So it's
0: it's funny, uh, I just, uh, I had a a viewer asked me a question about an article written by, oh my goodness, he's a, a health doctor, Gregory or Gregor. Um,
1: yeah, he's he's a, a vegan fanatic. He's a zealot. Yes. Uh, he is a medical doctor and uh, he, he writes quite well. I mean, I, I look at his videos. It, it's well constructed. However, uh, his real expertise is in cherry picking. Right. Uh, because he will promote any article that that uh, favors vegan uh, diet and uh, never mention any kind of article that shows that uh, there's some benefits to uh, a balanced diet you know that includes animal products so yes. he's very selective about the information uh, but it doesn't mean that the information he provides is wrong it isn't it's just not the whole picture Yes. And yeah, he has an agenda. He has a point of view, you know, which is uh, he's trying to vegan, promote plant-based diets. promote veganism. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, one, one can argue that a balanced vegan diet is probably a very healthy diet, uh, but not everyone looks at every morsel of food or should they, uh, that they put into their mouth as, you know, is this good for me or not? Uh, there's more to life than that. Uh, you know, flavor is a very big part of life.
0: Oh, that and, just explains my it, bacon and my whiskey and my beer. Right,
1: <laughs> enjoying food is a very big part of life. Yes, and you don't want uh, eating to be a totally clinical experience. Well, you're right?
0: gonna die. You're gonna die anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, <I laughs> think that, don't be crazy.
0: That,
1: but yeah, that is something that that uh, we can count on. That nobody <laughs> nobody comes out of life alive. Oh, that's right.
0: I was going to ask you about. Uh, there's another thing in the. The uh, uh, pyrethrin-based pesticide I use, and uh, it's called potassium salts of fatty acids. Can you explain what those are?
1: Yeah, uh, that is about as safe as you can get. Uh, Fatty acids are just fats. I mean, these are the natural building blocks of all fats in in our body, uh, often referred to as triglycerides. Uh, that refers to the, the molecular structure that these have. And they're just long chains of carbon atoms that are used to a backbone of uh, glycerol. And uh, fatty acids uh, uh, can exist either in their acid form or in a, in a salt form, which just means that they have been uh, neutralized by a base. And uh, fatty acid salts are, uh, are effective uh, organic uh, uh, pesticides. Uh, because they come from nature, they're made from fats, uh, and they will work for some things, but not for everything. What are you using them for?
0: They're in, the, they're in the, this product I use called, they're one of my sponsors from the show, so hopefully <laughs> I, don't in, I don't infuriate them by analyzing the constituent parts of their pesticides. But uh, um, and, and just, to, you know, Dr. Joe doesn't get any money from, I mean, you basically get paid by McGill to do what yeah. you're doing right now you don't get money from companies or anything like that you're just you're just a professory university it gets paid to do professorial type things Would that be a correct
1: absolutely okay <laughs> so what what is it that that you use the your fatty acid salts on
0: so they're 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 one of the constituent parts in this product that safer's makes calls Andol. so it's it's in with the pyrethrin
1: based pesticide okay, okay.
0: I'm, I'm guessing it's some sort of binder you know like a no no
1: uh, it's than just the binder it, no. it actually has uh, uh insecticidal activity okay oh yeah i mean uh, uh salts of uh, of triglycerides like soap salts
0: oh it's like a soap oh yeah
1: yeah okay they're, they're available you know just as a spray uh to use on plants and uh, people use this at home all the time household plants so so i, I suspect that uh, when they're combined with pyrethrins there's a synergistic effect that is that, you know, they uh, the combination works better than the indi- individual components. But both pyrethrins and the potassium salts of fatty acids individually are insecticides and very effective ones.
0: And those ones were listed at the, what's that called, the material safety data? Sh- those ones were actually listed as the, like, non-tox, I, th- I can't remember the terminology, but like the safe or the non-toxic yeah. ones. They had yeah. two things in that product listed as as toxic or what do they call it uh, dangerous or whatever that uh, terminology is I can't remember the terminology now um, they call that uh, hazardous uh, has the two hazardous ingredients that are listed in there are denatured ethanol and uh, hydrochloric acid right um,
1: well denatured ethanol as I told you ethanol is, is a known carcinogen you know mm-hmm. uh, this is the same alcohol that you have in your beer and your wine and your. are going to make
0: parties fun
1: Yeah. So, but again, you know, we always have to remind people that it's a question of dose. How much? How much you're exposed to and how you're exposed, which is another important thing, because there are substances that are totally innocuous uh, if they're uh, swallowed, but maybe a problem when inhaled. For example, Mm -hmm. mercury is an example of that. Uh, If you take a glob of mercury and you swallow it, Nothing will happen. It will come out the other end, really? yeah, but if you take that same amount of mercury and heat it up and inhale its vapor, that's a completely different situation. That would be highly toxic because it is getting directly into your bloodstream when you inhale it through the lungs. but when you ingest it, it does not cross the intestinal wall so, so
0: when you when you take in i mean well, there's a big i mean we 're getting way off topic here, but you just piqued my interest. When you're eating, and people are always saying, oh, salmon, it's got mercury in it. Um, and that's going in your stomach. But has that, that mercury been changed in some way that you can take up?
1: No, that's a different story. Okay. Because although they say there's mercury in there, they're not talking about elemental mercury. Uh, they're talking about a compound of mercury. Compound. And yeah, and methyl mercury is what they're talking about. I now, see. When, when mercury is exposed to um, uh, natural organisms and water systems, it gets converted to methylmercury, which is highly toxic. And that's the stuff that would be found in fish. Uh, right. So, it's, you know, there's no little bits of metallic mercury in, in the fish. Right. But even with the eating of fish and the mercury in there, it depends on which, which fish. The bigger fish generally have more because they feed on the smaller fish and it, it builds up in the food chain, right? So the very large fish, like tuna, uh, would have more mercury than uh, small fish. Yes. But some fish don't have any, like salmon has virtually no mercury at all. It mm. does, doesn't accumulate it. But in any case, the, really the concern about mercury in fish is during pregnancy. Uh, right. If you're not pregnant, uh, it really is not an issue.
0: And what about, so, I mean, I know people are going to ask, so I, I have to sort of chase this down. So the things like denatured ethanol and, and hydrochloric acid, out, outside of how much there is and how many parts per million and that sort of thing is I, it's not a lot. But what do those things, when you have a chemical compound with those two things in it, and let's say that chemical compound breaks down in nature, what do those things turn into?
1: Well, a- ethanol would not be a problem whatsoever when you... Uh when it gets into the ground... What does
0: it is, mean, de- like I said, I know what ethanol is. What is denatured? Well, denature
1: third, denature? The, the refers to proteins, specifically. Proteins are long chains of amino acids. Right. And uh, only when they are, these amino acids are connected in the right way does the protein function the way that it's supposed to function. Denaturation means that you are breaking the protein into smaller bits, smaller chains, when it no longer has the same biological activity. Oh that's what denature means it refers specifically to uh, to proteins uh, biodegradation is a different story uh, biodegradation is the breakdown of substances in the environment that are exposed to microbes like bacteria and and fungi and usually the end product of uh, of that kind of degradation is carbon dioxide and and water and nitrogen gas so when you say that something totally biodegrades it means that it is just putting innocuous substances into the environment.
0: So like something like hydrochloric acid, you've got hydrogen, you've got chlorine. Um, so and those two, two things would just become gases? Or would well, they combine I, with I, other things and become chloride, salts? Got, or?
1: Hydrogen chloride, actually, HCl, is a gas. When you dissolve hydrogen chloride in water, that's when you get hydrochloric acid. And we are, we are full of hydrochloric acid. This is the acid in our stomach oh we are we are constantly exposed to hydrochloric acid, so the trace amounts that you might ingest from you know some uh, some concoction would be totally irrelevant compared to the amount that is found in uh, in our stomach
0: <laughs> That's fascinating uh, that's great um, so the uh, one last question is this 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 other product I use it's a slug bait and uh, it's called uh, ferric sodium e d t a yeah. Um, so what can you tell me about that? What is that? Well, I mean, it's only six percent. I think that yeah. six percent by weight So yes. the rest is just uh, I think stuff that slugs like to eat like it yes. tastes good
1: uh, well EDTA it stands for tongue twisting ethylenediamine diamine acid and It is uh, what we call a chelating agent. The term chelate comes from the Greek word meaning claw and this uh, EDTA claws itself around an atom of iron And stabilizes it so that it is present in uh, in the product uh, and doesn't leach out so when you apply this to whatever you're applying it to you're sure that the iron which is the actual toxin here uh, that does what what you are wanting it to do to do away with the slugs it is uh, complex with this uh, EDTA, and that allows it to be transported into the body of the, of the slug. And there the iron will be released, and uh, the slug will be no more. And yes. you know here's another example of, you know iron, which is a necessary nutrient for uh, humans. but in the wrong dose and in this case, it's a high enough dose for the slug, it can be lethal.
0: Yes. So when that, something like that would, so let's say I I, I I throw a bunch on the ground and 50% of it gets eaten by slugs and the rest just gets rained on and, 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 and right. you know, breaks down and ends up in my soil in some way. What is that, it's, it doesn't remain, does, does it remain ferric sodium EDTA or does it become oh, it iron oxide and other things?
1: It gets broken down, yes, and iron oxide will be one of the products, which is of course a common mineral anyway and the EDTA will be broken down to acetic acid, which eventually will be broken down to carbon dioxide and water.
0: And what so, would the sodium
1: become? Uh, well, sodium is, uh, will be present in the ground. Um, sodium chloride is salt, so we have you know, plenty of sodium chloride, all kinds of sodium compounds in the ground already anyway. It's not, right. a, it's not a problem. So the products that you've mentioned certainly are, are uh, no concern in terms of toxicity.
0: Right. Unless you were, you know, drinking gallons of it.
1: <laughs> yes. Unless you're a slug.
0: <laughs> yes. Unless you're a slug, eating half your own body weight in iron. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I, we had some more questions, but I we've I think we've sort of uh, used up the time that uh, I uh, I borrowed you for. So uh, I don't want to uh, take advantage of that. So I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and giving us some of your time. I really uh, appreciate it. Uh, I'd love to have, the, have you on the show again. I'm sure there's lots of other things sure, we can discuss.
1: That. And you know, if anyone has any questions, uh, they can email me. We answer all the emails. So it's just S C H W A R C Z at mcgill.ca. You can maybe include that in your show notes. I will. And also our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS.
0: Okay, will do. All right, Doctor uh, Doctor Joe, thanks for being on our show. Really appreciate it. Okay, great. And everybody out there,
1: happy organic uh, gardening.
0: <laughs> thank you. And everybody out there, uh, until next time. Get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden. Thanks for listening. Hey there, did you know my sponsors have coupon codes that they've offered for all my listeners? If you check out the description box, if you're on YouTube, you'll see uh, coupon codes and links to their websites. If you're on the the podcast website, merrittimegrounding.com, check out the the, uh, show notes for this episode and you'll see those details there. Uh, If you enjoy watching the show and you want to support it, buy something you need from them and that'll help support the show. All right. Thanks a lot.